Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphonic Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is... Andrew Owen. Andrew Owen. And today we're going to be talking about Franz Liszt and his composition Le Prelude. <laughs> so uh, Franz Liszt, he was born on October 22nd of 1811 and he died on July 31st of 1886. He was a major figure in the 19th century uh, music, of course, and he was an innovator in the way he combined a fierce and unquenchable creative fire with a fully developed connoisseur's appreciation of both the music of contemporary composers, uh, composers and of giant figures from the past. Yeah, he was, um, he was the only child of Adam and Anna Liszt, or Adam and Anna. Um, Franz was born in Reiting, Hungary. Uh, this was a small town that uh, eventually had come under the administrative aegis of the Esterhazy family. Uh, the Esterhazy family, of course, being the, for those who paid very close attention in music history class to their music <laughs> majors, knows that they are, uh, Esterhazy's were responsible for uh, Joseph Haydn, Franz Joseph Haydn's life and his uh, livelihood through the majority of his life. Uh, but they also, the Esterhazy, in addition to Haydn, uh, back a hundred years or so prior, um, not 100, about 50, 75 mm -hmm. years prior, uh, employed Adam, uh, Liszt's father, Franz Liszt's father, as a steward. Uh, Franz showed very good musical promise quite early. He began lessons with his father before he was six years old, which is a pretty good age to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, those, those early pianos were, had smaller keyboards for those tiny little hands. Mm -hmm. uh, though uh, by the age of seven, he was already writing music. Uh, three years later, the boy was to re uh, was already quite ready to make his concert debut in the nearby town of Sopron, Sopron in Hungary. Uh, this was followed by two more concerts performed before the cream of Austrian society. Um, so as a direct result, young Franz was given an annual stipend for six years to enable him to concentrate solely on a musical career. Um, he was able to secure... Uh, well, his father was able to secure several important uh, teachers, uh, two of which are a guy by the name of Karl Czerny, uh, who was an ex-pupil of Ludwig van Beethoven, whom we've talked about before, Mr. Beethoven. He's a German composer. <laughs> um, so someone. Uh, uh, Czerny uh, was a student of Beethoven and Franz's piano teacher. Uh, while composition and theory, uh, Franz received lessons from Antonio Salieri, who was um, a quite a prominent composer, contemporary of Mozart, and if you are a big fan of the movie Amadeus, uh, the sole murderer of uh, Wolfgang Mozart, that's not true. That's not true. <laughs> in the movie and the play, they uh, gets a good sensational thing. So, yeah, so, so Franz had both uh, Czerny and Salieri teaching him. So um, since both of them lived in Vienna, the family moved to, uh, to Vienna in 1821 to take lessons, uh, to mm -hmm. help Franz with lessons with the guy. Yeah. With those guys. Yeah. And speaking of Beethoven, during his time in, in Vienna, Liszt actually had the good fortune of meeting him, meeting Beethoven. Uh, and although Beethoven was deaf by this point, uh, he attended one of uh, Liszt's concerts and bestowed his blessings on, on Liszt, uh, on the young Liszt. Uh, Franz's reputation spread really quickly, and before the end of 1821, he had, be he had been chosen as one of 50 composers, others including, including Beethoven, Czerny, and Salieri. Uh, to write a set of variations to a waltz written by the composer uh, and publisher uh, Diabelli. Uh, and by the autumn of 1823, Franz's father decided it was time to widen his son's audience and moved his, the family to Paris. Uh, Liszt took the variations by storm. Uh, he also completed his musical education by taking private lessons from Anton Reika uh, and Fer Ferdinando Pear. 
So he's got a lot of teachers all over the place. Good teachers. Oh, for sure. So yeah, so this, um, a uh, couple of years later, in um, or one year later, in uh, London, uh, he he visited this uh, visited London. It was uh, a very successful concert tour that he did there. He, um, it was crowned by a private concert before George the uh, Fourth. By late 1825, France had even composed a one-act opera, Don Sanche, uh, which was premiered in Paris to a mixed reaction. Uh, I mean, we don't really hear too much about Don Sanche, mm -hmm. Don Sanche, or whatever mm -hmm. the French, however the French pronounced it. Uh, we don't hear too much about that opera these days. So uh, the next two years brought constant travel through much of Europe, uh, financial rewards and the premieres of a stream of juvenile works, uh, few of which have survived in their original form. Uh, uh, this, uh, this was a wonderful time for, for Franz to get his name out. So by the summer of 1827, Franz, who was still only 16 years old, thinking about what we were all doing at the age of 16, was, in, was quite exhausted and, and took to his bed in Paris. Now, doctors recommended a cure at the baths in Boulogne, uh, to which both father and son repaired, uh, though shortly after their arrival, Francis' father, Adam, died at the age of 51 from typhoid fever. Mm -hmm. So, unfortunate situation for poor mm -hmm. Franz, only 16 years old, so he's seeing his father die. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's very sad. So, yeah. they're, all dead. they're all dead now, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the death of his father uh, forced Liszt to reevaluate re his career choices. Uh, already deeply disaffected uh, with the life of a touring virtuoso, he found the prospect of prolonging it repugnant. For him, music was a noble calling uh, and being, quote, a musician in the employ of the rich who patronized, who patronized me and paid me like an interrant entertainer, uh, unquote. He felt to be degrading. Yeah, Liszt, uh, we know that he felt like he was like kind of like a circus act. Um, and he didn't like that life. So he just thought he deserved respect as an artist instead of um, money as a traveling entertainer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So arranging, arranging for his mother to join him in Paris, he earned a living by teaching piano to the children of the rich and influential, falling deeply in love with the 16-year-old daughter of a cabinet minister. Uh, although his feelings were reciprocated, her father objected uh, and the girl was, was quickly married off to a socially acceptable suitor. Uh, Liz never forgot her, uh, even making provisions for her uh, in his will. Uh, for several years, uh, he withdrew from the world uh, and even considered entering a seminary. He had lost the way forward. Uh, it took the 1830 revolution in France to present him with a solution. So a bunch of, you know, bad, bad luck there. His father dies, then he, he likes this girl, but of course his father doesn't want him to marry him. So he's got like a, a string of bad luck here at the beginning. <laughs> Such a sad guy. And, and I, he and was... Who knows? I mean, maybe if, uh, maybe if she and he were able to get together, he wouldn't have turned out into the womanizing... Uh, <laughs> Charlatan he later became. Um, who knows? You know, maybe, maybe he would have left her after he got after a couple of years bored with her. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. So so yes. This um, it was uh, this 1830 revolution in France that gave him sort of a, a channel for uh, for self identity. So so for a young man with a passionate commitment to social equality and democracy, the overthrow of an autocratic monarch was very inspiring. Uh, he immediately planned a revolutionary symphony to express his sentiments. And although he never really progressed very far with the idea, it had the effect of bringing him out into the world again. It gave him some degree of purpose. Uh, a series of musical events in 1830 to 31 cemented his renewed ties with humanity uh, and confirmed the form his artistic voice would later take. Uh, 
He, uh, during this year, attended the first performance in 1830 of Hector Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, which we've talked about. Uh, Liszt was overwhelmed by the vivid expression of such turbulent ideas and emotions. He was very, very enthralled. He applauded wildly, according to Berlioz, dragging him off, quote, for dinner at his house and overwhelming me with his enthusiasm, unquote. The two became friends, Liszt learning a great deal from Berlioz about scoring for an orchestra. Of course, uh, Liszt was a pianist, not an orchestrator. This was not something mm -hmm. he was particularly good at until Berlioz mm -hmm. schooled him up on it. Uh, as we remember, Berlioz was, uh, was an orchestrator more than he was really anything else. He never mm -hmm. really learned piano. He played flute and guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so uh, three months later, after this uh, symphony fantastique experience, uh, he uh, was, uh, Liszt was in the audience at Niccolo Paganini's Paris debut. Uh, once again, he was overwhelmed, this time by the sheer demonic pitch of uh, Paganini's virtuosity. Um, he, he was really enthralled by his, uh, by his charisma. Uh, so soon after the concert, he began work on the first Etude d'Execution Transcendente après Paganini. Uh, these are works that, have, that were long regarded as a set of impossibly difficult piano pieces. And they're, mm -hmm. they're not impossibly difficult. I mean, you hear them all the time nowadays in, in undergraduate piano recitals, but mm -hmm. they're... But they're still uh, just beasts of pieces if what you're used to in terms of uh, musical virtuosity, piano virtuosity, is Beethoven, mm -hmm. which is you know fast and furious stuff. But but these uh, transcendental etudes by by Franz Liszt were uh, sort of his way of breaking into uh, the piano world, what Paganini had done on the, in the violin world. Paganini mm -hmm. was the great uh, virtuoso violinist that just did crazy circus-like things on on his instrument. Mm -hmm. Liszt sort of carried that tradition on into the piano, especially mm -hmm. with those transcendental etudes. Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, at the end of 1831, uh, Friedrich Chopin, uh, who was at the time 21 years old, arrived in Paris and held his first concert there. Uh, Liszt was uh, again present and, true to his open nature, immediately declared his belief in Chopin's genius. Uh, all these composers helped define the approach Liszt took towards his own compositional wizardry and helped him to mold his talents until his audience, audiences became as possessed by his music as himself. Uh, but it required one more event to put all these encounters into perspective. In 1833, Liszt, who was only 22 at the time, fell in love with Countess Marie de Gould. Uh, a married woman of 28 years old. Uh, the, imp the impact was mu mutual. She, she, actually, she, she also liked him. Um, so Mary recorded her feelings for him uh, and she wrote, quote, uh, passion, with passion he uttered thoughts and opinions totally strange to ears like mine, accustomed as they were to hearing only banal conventional views, unquote. Uh, and although deeply moved, Marie delayed for over a year um, and they finally eloped, eloped to Switzerland, uh, where for the next four years they lived together, uh, Marie producing two daughters, uh, Blandine and Cosima, and one son, Daniel, and Franz composing and, and enlarging his intellectual, intellectual horizons. He also gave occasional concerts um, here and there. Uh, and by 1833, Liszt was traveling more widely, his ardor for Marie was cooled, uh, and by the end of 1839, they were living apart. Marie in Paris and Liszt continued to develop his concert career. Uh, Liszt's mother took over the education of their children against Marie's wishes. So, here's, um, I mean, we know that, you know, Liszt was kind of this womanizing guy, you know, the, all the ladies loved him, uh, and he was, you know, kind of like the first rock star. Everybody, everybody loved him. And so, we see here that even though, you know, he got married, they were apart shortly after. Goes through all the trouble of splitting up a happy marriage <laughs> and gets bored with her.
<laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, they like like you said, they, that marriage that produced those two daughters, Blondine and Cosima. We'll talk a little bit more about Cosima as we go on. She was the uh, uh, the one who later married uh, Richard Wagner after cheating on her first husband uh, <laughs> with him. Uh, the first husband being Hans von Bülow, mm -hmm. the guy that came up with the, the phrase, the three Bs, mm -hmm. uh, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, uh, mm -hmm. that, that guy. Uh, Hans von Bülow was her first husband. So it was just a crazy, crazy love triangle, which uh, you can't discuss Liszt's life without discussing how a love triangle works. <laughs> uh, it's a constant, uh, constantly complicating weave. Mm -hmm. So, so for the next ten years, Liszt continued to build his already towering reputation, uh, and by the late 1840s, he was unchallenged as the greatest virtuoso of his day. Um, he was an outrageously good pianist. I mean, mm -hmm. even by today's standards, where you know we're getting better and better at this instrument, he was very, very good. He had this game that he would play, where uh, when he'd have friends over, he would have have them bring a, a, a handwritten orchestral score of something that he had never heard before, some unknown piece. And he would take the handwritten orchestral score, put it on the piano music stand upside down, and play it at the piano, reducing all of the parts into his hands, mm -hmm. um, and playing it very pianistically uh, while giving a running commentary about what he liked and didn't like. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite, quite a fun little game. It's something that no one has ever been able to do before or since. Mm -hmm. uh, just He was an outrageously good mind when it came to uh, piano playing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was his preeminence that ushered in uh, a little invention of his known as the solo recital. Uh, this is uh, whereby a single artist would mostly perform for an entire program. Uh, this was an entirely new concept. Prior to Liszt, people had all kinds of different things in a concert, um, and the piano uh, was, was situated differently on the stage. Uh, List was the first person to put the piano perpendicularly to the stage so you could see the keyboard, uh, from, from, you see the sides of the pianist's hands. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the one who invented the idea of a recital being where you memorize music, you mm -hmm. memorize your entire program, so no music stand. Mm -hmm. Pretty crazy stuff. But yeah, all these things are, are List's invention. You have him to thank for the level of difficulty that we now experience in the piano world. Uh, so in Liszt's case, the recitals music usually consisted of his own compositions. Uh, these recitals were given throughout Europe, including Britain, Turkey, and Russia. Uh, the money that these tours generated forced Liszt to take on a personal manager, thus freeing him to conduct his personal life as he saw fit. Uh, this inevitably meant affairs, many of them notorious, with leading female personalities of his day. Uh, he, he was not the kind of guy who was... Uh, particularly monogamous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, in his travels, he uh, also met many musicians and composers, from uh, the Schumanns, Clara and Robert in Leipzig, uh, to uh, Michael Glinka in Moscow, and Richard Wagner, uh, who was then penniless and virtually unknown, in Weimar. Mm -hmm. So the connection with Weimar was to grow in significance. Uh, uh, in, in 1842, he was given a large honorary conducting position by Grand Duke Karl Alexander. Uh, which meant him holding his first concert there in Weimar in 1844. And over the next few years, he became increasingly involved in the planning of the city's cultural development, which, of course, would in inevitably involve Liszt and Wagner's rise to fame there in Weimar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he, Liszt was just sort of this catalyst of, um, of creating new music in the Romantic uh, era and aesthetic. 
near the, near the middle of the, of the 19th century. Yeah, and also talking about you know him being such an amazing piano player, we also need to mention the the phrase listomania, right? Is oh, yeah. basically, I mean, it's a word that we we still use today when referring to people that are you know go crazy over somebody uh, famous, right? And this is a phrase that you know started with Liszt, him being kind of like the first rock star. Everybody loved him. Everybody, you know, basically all the all the women threw themselves at him and they threw their panties at him and all that that kind of stuff. <laughs> Not sure about panties, but they definitely yeah. <laughs> uh, gambled for uh, bits of his cigar butts or locks of his hair. Yeah, um, people were absolutely worshipped that man. They, exactly, they, they they screamed over his piano playing, mm -hmm. just like you would expect to see at a Justin Bieber concert. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, the event that finally uh, precipitated the move to Weimar was his meeting while on tour in Kiev with uh, Princess Caroline uh, von Sein Wittgenstein, dude. I'm worst every time. <laughs> seriously, every podcast I get worse at these words. <laughs> well, it's the, it's a fun word because it's an old German spelling. It's Caroline von Sein Wittgenstein. Awesome. Uh, you... It's it's nasty. <laughs> she was an immensely rich uh, Polish aristocrat, already separated from her German husband, a member of the Tsar military elite. Uh, their decision to marry um, and and enta entailed uh, Caroline to devote, uh, who was a devout Catholic. Catholic, sorry, <laughs> obtaining a divorce that requires special permission from the Tsar. Uh, the princess' belief in the spiritual nature of Liszt's artistic calling helped him decide to abandon his largely frustrating, although very lucrative, concert career. By the spring of 1848, they were settling into life in, in, in Weimar. Uh, this was harder for the princess than for Liszt. Uh, living openly with him, she was snubbed by Weimar society and her state in the Ukraine uh, sequestered uh, by the Russian state as a part uh, of the eventual secular divorce settlement in 1852. Poor list, let me tell you. Don Juan, <laughs> an autobiography. This guy was, uh, he did not really enjoy falling in love with people who weren't already married. It's just, <laughs> That's a, right. just an issue. I mean, don't get me wrong, he still liked those who weren't married, but yeah. the ones that we hear about are the ones that were, were married. Yeah. Uh, so despite these obstacles, their rented house in Weimar became a major center for artists, musicians, and writers. Uh, everybody stopped by this place. So during this settled period, Liszt began composing his first orchestral works, including the series of tone poems that would remain one of the most uh, distinctive compositional legacies of his, uh, Tasso, Lamento e Triunfono, uh, Triunfo, sorry, uh, and uh, Les Préludes. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, and planning his Weimar musical seasons. Uh, looming large in his plans was a production of Wagner's Lohengrin. Uh, Wagner attended the rehearsals while on the run from the authorities in Dresden for his part in the 1848-49 uh, uprisings all over Europe. Uh, Liszt personally arranged for Wagner's flight to Switzerland. Uh, this guy was, I mean, Liszt was just, he loved being helpful, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, so, so Wagner was not only uh, was not the only beneficiary of Liszt's generosity in Weimar. Uh, in the years before his, 19, his 1859 uh, resignation, Liszt, mourned, uh, sorry, uh, Liszt mounted no fewer than 11 new productions of contemporary operas, including three from Wagner, Berlioz's Benvenu Cellini, Giacomo Meyerbeer's Le Huguenot, uh, Giuseppe Verdi's Hernani, uh, Schumann's uh, Genoveva, and uh, Franz Schubert's neglected Alfonso Unterstrela. Uh, I mean, he was very much involved in creating these, and um, uh, uh, helping to premiere the, these new works by such relatively obscure composers as Berlioz, Meyerbeer, Verdi, uh, Schumann, and Schubert. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. so he, I mean, he had his hands in, in some pretty important waters throughout his entire life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Virtually everyone made the pilgrimage to Weimar, some remaining close to Liszt, like uh, von Bülow marrying Cosima Liszt in 1857, and others like Brahms, only fl uh, fleetingly held in awe by the great man's talents. Uh, even good friends like the Schumanns found, found Liszt's compositions too much, as Clara commented after a visit from the pianist um, in, in the early 1850s, uh, quote, Oh, what terrible composition. If a youngster were to write such stuff, one might forgive him. But what can one say when a full-grown man is so deluded? Uh, unquote. So this was Clara Schumann writing about this list, list, list composition. Uh, the critic uh, Edward Hanslick, who we talked about him before, uh, called his challenging uh, B minor sonata of 1853 uh, as, quote, a and concatenation of utterly disparate elements. Uh, anybody who has heard uh, this thing and, and liked it is beyond hope, unquote. <laughs> so yeah. all these yeah, this new compositions that Liszt was writing at the time, people didn't like. I mean, Liszt is basically, you know, he's, he's the first one to write this new kind of composition, the, the symphonic poem, right? So oh, I, mean, I guess people didn't one like of them. The first, yeah. yeah, one of the first. Yeah, he was a uh, brilliant, uh, brilliant guy. People loved his piano playing, and, uh, and Brahms had gone there only with the uh, invitation of his dear friend uh, Remenyi, a violinist. Uh, he, he had gone over there and, and spent a little bit of time at Liszt's house, and, and Brahms just didn't like Liszt's lifestyle at all. He just thought <laughs> it was horrible. But he, I mean, no one's going to deny that he's a very good pianist. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Clara Schumann loved Liszt's piano playing. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Clara kind of presided over a, a competition, sort of a, a rap battle between <laughs> him and uh, Liszt contemporary uh, Thalberg. Um, uh, another fabulous pianist. They both played music, and, and Clara said there's no competition. List fantastic pianist. Mm -hmm. Composer, however, not not fantastic. <laughs> uh, his his music has has very little um, planning, very little uh, um, uh, sense of overall arch, uh, according to them. For uh, for List, it was more about letting music kind of compose itself, following mm -hmm. instinct, and letting the, the music represent moods and those kinds of things. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's nice, but. If you have people who are used to the quality of Clara Schumann's compositions or Brahms's compositions, you go, mm -hmm. well, it's just not as good. <laughs> but in any case, very, very good pianist. Mm -hmm. uh, so the 1860s brought a series of disasters, uh, presaged by the death in 1859 of Liszt's gifted only son Daniel from consumption. Uh, this is a very young uh, death. Uh, I think Daniel was born in the early 30s, died in 59, so he wasn't terribly old. I mean, got to adult life. Mm -hmm. So in 1861, the Pope refused to spiritually sanction the princess's legal annulment, uh, who is his current uh, woman. Uh, in uh, 1862, his beloved daughter Blondine died. In 1863, his second daughter Cosima abandoned her husband Hans von Bülow, as I mentioned earlier, and eloped with none other than uh, Mr. Richard Faulkner, uh, to Liszt's chagrin. Liszt wasn't a big fan of this move. However, I mean, I mean, they, they, Liszt still supported Wagner as much as he could, but he didn't like the fact that he, yeah. she was leaving uh, von Bülow for him. Von Bülow was fantastic uh, orchestra conductor. Mm -hmm. uh, he was uh, a strange guy. I think he made his entire orchestra stand at all times while mm -hmm. playing. It's kind of a strange fellow. But yeah, um, not, not a great situation. So the breach between father and daughter was never really quite healed. Uh, tired of the strife in Weimar, Liszt joined the princess who was already in Rome on a pilgrimage and devoted himself exclusively to religious music, even taking the four minor orders, mm -hmm. which allowed him to assume the new title of abbe, mm -hmm. uh, or abbot. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, the death in 1861 of the princess's husband had left the way clear for a new attempt to marry, but neither had the will for it any longer. Uh, after 1864, they never really met again, uh, despite a good three-year buffer of uh, uh, the death of her husband. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, just a just a strange, sordid, uh, complicated affair story, mm-hmm. uh, all around list in his life. But yeah, he did take the minor orders. This really confused people. The fact that this not a terribly moral guy yeah. went ahead and uh, became a uh, an abbot, became mm-hmm. a minor, uh, joined the minor order of priesthood. You know, the the order that did not require chastity. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> of course, you, know, you can't can't give that up once you. you know, I can't want to keep that going. <laughs> so by the end of the decade, the, this decade, uh, Liz had written a series of, of devotional works, including The Legend of Saint Elizabeth, um, and had uh, permanently adopted the wearing of a cassock. Um, That's that long black um, uh, clerical garb with the black buttons all the way up the center and all the <laughs> way to the top. <laughs> Uh, he was also invited uh, back to Weimar to give a series of masterclass demonstrations. Uh, these were to continue uh, for the rest of his life, uh, least spending part uh, of each year in Weimar. Uh, he also developed uh, his relationship with uh, Budapest, uh, nurturing his love for his homeland, and in 1870 was appointed president of Budapest Music Academy. Uh, he now divided each year between Weimar, Budapest, and Rome. Uh, in 1872, he came to a reconciliation of sorts with Cosima and, and Wagner, uh, now married and well advanced with their uh, dream of building a Beirut theater. Uh, List, uh, uh, last great oratorio Christus, was premiered in Weimar in 1873 with Wagner and Cosima present. And yeah, of course, I mean, this, this uh, I don't know if we've talked about, uh, yeah, I think we've talked about Beirut before, right? This uh, very famous theater that Wagner used for all his operas. Yes, he had it built for his operas. Mm-hmm. It was designed specifically to uh, show off the, the highest qualities of his operas. Mm-hmm. It was that uh, the Bayreuth uh, Spielhaus, uh, that Spielhaus, uh, this, this amazing theater has um, has a pit that makes it so you can hear the singer over the orchestra. Really well designed mm-hmm. thing. So yeah, uh, Liszt did have some reconciliation with Cosima. He can't estrange your daughter forever. So <laughs> it was very nice of him to get back involved, even though she. Was a cheating woman. So, uh, Liszt uh, remained a focal point for the best young talents of the day, and his attachment, as his attachment to Rome receded, his involvement in their developing careers uh, increased. In 1876, his old lover, Countess Marie d'Agou, uh, died in France, but he was left unmoved. Um, you know, that's, that's an X, that's a long time ago. So, so, later that year, the Bayreuth premiere of Wagner's Ring Cycle gave him more to be moved by as did the acclamation he received at the 1878 Universal Exhibition in Paris, when his old enemy, Edward Hanslick, uh, proposed that he should be made honorary president of the exhibition's musical jury. Uh, he, I mean, people did like Liszt, you know, as much as they didn't like him, they liked him. He was sort mm-hmm. of the, you know, he, he made some enemies along the way, but mm-hmm. those, those kinds of opinion differences seemed to have cooled as he got older. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet the pattern of his life, Weimar, Budapest, Rome, with the occasional sortie <laughs> to Beirut, uh, did little to uh, relieve his weariness. Uh, his ruthlessness and the gradual deterioration of his health led to the diminution of his powers. Uh, while a series of piano works written in his, late, in his last decade, uh, most of them filled with a deep melancholy, uh, leaving the impression of a troubled soul. Uh, 
In particular, four pieces written uh, to the time of Wagner's death in 1833 have an existential angst that is deeply disturbing. So yeah, these later pieces are very weird for Liszt. I mean, they are not the show-off pieces that we, you know, that we know from his youth. They are very, very strange for, for I mean, th this person that we think of as this, you know, super, super virtuoso guy. Yeah, these are also the pieces that break from uh, conventional tonality. Mm -hmm. um, I think the the the, the bagatella una tonart probably falls into this category. Mm -hmm. This um, this a bagatelle without a key. Mm -hmm. It's a really strange piece. Um, so yeah, uh, by his last years, Liszt and the princess had drifted apart entirely. She refused to leave Rome and was increasingly loath to go there. Um, his health was giving out, and he tended to remain within the reach of the Wagners. Uh, and was deeply touched by Wagner's dedication of Parseval to him. Uh, yet, with Wagner's death, Cosima pushed him away. Uh, his chief pleasure now was teaching the piano to his young pupils. With his eyesight considerably impaired and his energy gone, he rarely played in public anymore. And by the summer of 1886, he was virtually blind, his body invaded by dropsy. Uh, he returned ailing to Weimar, where he had a devoted young companion, uh, Lena Schmalhausen, uh, to comfort him. He died from pneumonia in July and was buried in Bayreuth during the festival. Now this isn't just your average death. I mean this guy was basically left alone in a hotel room there at the uh, at the Bayreuth festival uh, and he just you know sweated it out and, and passed on into the night and passed on in the middle of the day while everyone mm -hmm. else was out doing his thing. And then after his death there wasn't even really an announcement. It just sort of was very quiet about the whole deal. Uh, mm -hmm. Really quite a shame. But yeah. yeah. It's just sort of a, he, he died old, which is good, but when yeah. you die old, you, gotta, you have some complications. And he, I mean, he had a really fulfilling life, you know, I mean, he basically, he, he did it, he did it all, <laughs> he did everything. Oh yeah, he's sort of like a piano virtuoso version of Forrest Gump. <laughs> exactly. Sees, sees everything, this has something to do with every yeah, advance yeah. in music in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. So central to Liszt's achievement was his prodigious keyboard virtuosity, uh, his inventness, and his ability to devise new techniques that revolutionized the approach to the instrument. Uh, thus, it might be held that his uh, copious solo piano output is the most crucial part of his legacy, including the B minor piano sonata, the Anes de Pelegrinage, uh, and the Etus, all his Etus. Uh, but his orchestral tone poems, the so-called program music, are in, in a real sense his most permanent imaginative achievement. Uh, the Dante and Faust symphonies are both major testaments to a, cons a concern with the literal and philosophical uh, uh, truths expressed in music, and, such, and as such are central to the 19th century romantic tradition. Uh, they are also examples of the sometimes demonical energies to be found in his music. Uh, Liszt also, uh, has also been uh, cited as important in these works in his uh, coining and development of the idea of theme transformation rather than more traditional ideas of classical development. Uh, this approach perhaps reached its, its apotheosis in uh, Wagner. And I mean, uh, we talked about the, Faust, the, the Dante Symphony, the Faust Symphony. Uh, yeah, the Dante Symphony when we were talking about Mahler. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, so. So this approach to making music is what Liszt was quite well known for. Just this, um, when it came to Liszt's compositions, it was all about let the piece decide the form. Don't let the form uh, create the structure of the piece. Let the piece's mm -hmm. content give it give it its own structure. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this brings us to probably one of the best known examples of an orchestral work whose form is based entirely on its content. It's just sort of mm-hmm. uh, self-composed. Uh, mm-hmm. This piece is uh, today's topic, which is les préludes. Uh, mm-hmm. In French, we tell plural words by les rather than le. Le prélude would be singular. Les préludes would be uh, plural. So les préludes is the uh, third of Franz Liszt's 13 symphonic poems. Uh, it's listed as S97 in Humphrey Searle's catalog of Liszt's music. So um, all of Liszt's music is uh, categorized in S numbers, S. sort of mm-hmm. like BWV or uh, mm-hmm. Kirchel, the mm-hmm. K numbers of Mozart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so S97 by Humphrey Searle. Um, and the music is partly based on Liszt's 1844-45 choral cycle, uh, Les Quatre Elements, or Les Quatre Elements, uh, The Four Elements. Uh, the, the premiere was in 1854, directed by Liszt himself. Uh, the score was published in 1856 by Breitkopf und Hertel, uh, who also published the musical parts in 1865. Um, so, Les Prelude is the earliest example of an orchestral work entitled Symphonic Poem. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, an orchestral work that's a single movement that tells yeah. something of a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's its own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in terms of form, much of the music from Le Prelude uh, der- derives from Liszt's earlier choral cycle, like the four elements, like you said, from 1844 to 45. And these settings were later orchestrated, and an orchestral overture was written from them. Um, Le-, Le Prelude is written for a large orchestra of strings, woodwinds, brass, including tuba, bass trombone, uh, harp, and a variety of percussion instruments, like timpani, side drums, bass drums, and cymbals. Uh, it comprises the following sections. Uh, of course, it doesn't have movements, but it has these kind of sections. Uh, the first section, uh, Question, which is uh, an introduction, and Andante Maestoso, bars 1 to 46. Then Love, which is uh, 47 to 108. Sorry, yes, uh, 108. Then Storm is bars 109 to 181. Uh, bu- uh, Bucolic Calm is 182 to 344. And Battle and Victory is 345 to 420, including recapitulation of question uh, in bars uh, 405. Bucolic is a good uh, SAT word. <laughs> you know, just scenic. <laughs> if you see Bucolic Calm, you expect to see some cows in the distance. <laughs> so, uh, in measure three of one of the main motifs of Les Préludes, the note CBE is introduced. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the introduction, this motif is frequently repeated in different forms. Uh, it is, however, the head of a melody, which in its entire form is for the first time played in bars 47 uh, and, and, and uh, some, from 47 on. Uh, the melody was taken from the chorus piece Les Astres. Uh, which means the stars, uh, which is of course from the four elements, uh, where it is sung to the words "On me pas sur le globe qui roule," solitary men on the rolling globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Richard Taroskin, who we also we also talked about him before, he points out that the section of Le Preludes, quote, correspond to the movements of a conventional symphony, if not uh, the most conventional order. Uh, unquote. He adds, he adds that, uh, quote, the music uh, will heavily embedded in concept to Berlioz, uh, subconsciously uh, uh, advertises its uh, descent from Beethoven, even as it flaunts its freedom from the formal constraints to which Beethoven has, had submitted. The standard there and back construction that had controlled music, uh, musical discourse since the, at least uh, the time of the old dance suite continues to impress its general shape, shape on the sequence of program, programmatically derived events. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, those are the words of uh, Richard Taruskin, who is uh, who will be dropping by LSU uh, later this month for the Prokofiev conference. So that awesome. should be lots of fun to, to see nice. him come by. Always, he's sort of the uh, he wrote the the Oxford history of um, uh, Western music. He basically knows everything and. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you ever have a question about anything in the course of music history ever, he can answer it off the top of his head. He's very, very mm -hmm. talented. So um, uh, the program here is um, uh, is uh, the full title of this piece, Les Préludes d'après Lamartine, refers to an ode from uh, Alphonse de Lamartine's Nouvelle Méditation Poétique uh, of 1823, the new uh, poetic meditations by Alphonse de Lamartine. Uh, however, the piece was originally conceived as the overture to Les Quatre Elements, uh, settings of poems by uh, Joseph Autran, uh, A-U-T-R-A-N, Autran, uh, which itself was drawn from music of the four choruses of the cycle. It seems that Liszt took steps to obscure the origin of the piece and that this included the destruction of the original overture's title page and the re-ascription of the piece to Van Martin's poem, which, however, does not itself contain anything like the music's question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, sort, of a, sort of goes up with an upward yeah. reflection. Like, mm -hmm. right. yeah. uh, the 1856 published score includes, includes a text preface, uh, which however is not from, the, from uh, Lamartine. Uh, and it says, What else is our life but a series of preludes to an unknown hymn? Uh, the first and solemn note which uh, is noted by death. Um, Love is the glowing dawn of all existence, but what is the fate uh, where the first delights of happiness are not interrupted by some storm, the, moral, uh, the mortal blast of which uh, dissipates its fine illusions, the fatal lightning of which consumes its altar? And where is the cruelly uh, wounded soul which, on issuing from one of these tempests, does not endeavor to rest his recollection in the calm serenity of life in the fields? Nevertheless, uh, man hardly gives himself up for long to the enjoyment of the uh, beneficent uh, stillness which at first he has shared in nature's uh, bosom. Uh, and when, uh, quote, the trumpet and the alarm, unquote, uh, he, hast he hastens to, uh, to the dangerous post. Um, whatever the war may be which calls him to its ranks in order at last to recover in the combat full consciousness of himself and entire possession of his energy. Whew! That's a lot. It's a lovely little preface. We, uh, we do know who wrote the earliest version of this preface. It's not Lamartine. The only thing that survives on Lamartine is the phrase, uh, the trumpet sounds the alarm, and the title, Les Préludes. Mm -hmm. uh, but the earliest version of this preface was written in March of 1854 by Princess Caroline Zuzain uh, Wittgenstein, mm -hmm. uh, this, uh, this princess that Liszt spent so much time with. Mm -hmm. Um, this version comprises voluminous reflections of the princess, uh, into which some lines of the quotations from the Ode by Lamartine are incorporated. Uh, it was drastically shortened for publication in April 1856 as a part of the score. Um, so yeah, it was. Um, it's a lovely little expression of what this piece is supposed to be about. Lots of angst and good romantic sentiment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A uh, different version of, of the preface was written for the occasion of uh, a performance of Le Prelude on December 6th of 1855 in Berlin. Uh, in the 1855 version, the connection with Lamartine, Lamartine is reduced to his uh, alleged query. Uh, quote, what else is our life but a series of plays to, to that unknown hymn, the first and solemn note of which is, is intoned by death, unquote. 
That's it. Uh, however, this sentence was actually written not by Lamartine, but by Priestess uh, Wittgenstein, like you said. So, but I mean, this, this preface is just really short on the 1855 version. So, uh, for the occasion of a performance of Les Preludes on April 30th, 1860, in Prague, a further version of the preface was made. This version was probably written by Hans von Bülow, who directed the performance. Uh, everybody loves Hans von Bülow, of course, except for Cosima. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it is rather short and contains no reference to Lamartine at all. According to this version, Les Preludes uh, illustrates the development of a man from his early youth to maturity. In this interpretation, Les Preludes may be taken as a part of, uh, as part of a sketched musical autobiography. Uh, so, so Liszt himself, in a letter to Edward Liszt of uh, March 26, 1857, uh, gave another hint with regard to the title Les Preludes. According to this, uh, Les Preludes represents the prelude to Liszt's own path of composition. Uh, let's talk about self-hagiography, uh, self-aggrandizement. That's all good. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have that. Yeah. And after this uh, symphonic poem was introduced, uh, um, this is basically, like we said, the earliest example of an orchestral work uh, that was performed as a symphonic poem. Uh, in a letter to uh, Franz Brendel on, on February 20th of 1854, Liszt simply called it, called it uh, a new orchestral work of mine. Um, and two days later, in the announcement in uh, Weimarische uh, Zeitung um, of February 22 of 1854, uh, of the concert on February 23, uh, it, called, um, it was called Le Preluse Symphonic Dichtung. The term symphonic poem was thus invented here, um, referring to this piece. So, um, so the piece ha was received uh, with mixed reviews from different people. Uh, the, the critic Edward Hanslick, who believes in absolute music, lambasted Les Preludes, uh, absolute music being music in and of itself, mm -hmm. uh, music that doesn't follow a story. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in an 1857 article following a performance in Vienna, he denounced the idea of a symphonic poem as a contradiction in terms. He also denied that music was in any way a language that could express anything you know, tell me how to get to the store in music, mm -hmm. uh, and mocked Liszt's assertion that it could translate concrete ideas or assertions. The aggrieved Liszt wrote to his cousin Edward, uh, the doctrinaire Hanslick could not be favorable to me. His article is perfidious. And other, uh, other critics, uh, such as Felix uh, Dreisica, uh, were more supportive. Mm -hmm. uh, he, had, he had supporters, he had uh, opponents, such yeah. as to be expected. Mm -hmm. Um, and early performances in America were not appreciated by conservative, uh, conservative critics here. Um, at an 1856, perf uh, sorry, 1857 performance of the piano duet arrangement, uh, the critic of um, the, the Dwight's Journal of Music wrote, um, What shall we say of the preludes? A poise uh, symphon symphonique uh, by Liszt. The poetry uh, we listened uh, for in vain. It was lost as it were in the smoke uh, and stunning uh, tumult of a battlefield. There were here and there brief, fleeting fragments of something delicate and sweet to ear and mind, but these were quickly swallowed up by one long, uh, monotonous, uh, fatiguing melee of convulsive, crashing, startling mass, uh, masses of tone, uh, flung back and forth uh, as, in, as if in rivalry from instrument uh, to instrument. We must, uh, we must have been very stupid listeners, but we felt after as if, as if we had been stoned and beaten and trampled underfoot and in all ways evilly entreated. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the work is more recently uh, rated by uh, Leslie Howard as 
easily the most popular of least 13 symphonic poems. I mean, we know this. This is the most popular of his poems, definitely. This is the one that is played most out of all of them. And if you ever hear uh, a, least, a least symphonic poem, it's probably going to be this one. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, like, there are several other ones, but this one's quite good. Mm -hmm. so, um, so let's talk a little bit about the music. So Liszt developed a technique known as thematic transformation. This is really quite what he's known for, much the same way that Brahms later get, becomes known for uh, developing variations mm -hmm. uh, by Schoenberg. Uh, Liszt was big into thematic transformation. That's mm -hmm. where he received his, that's where the piece received its uh, structure. Mm -hmm. uh, he drew a longer theme from the motif, uh, from the motif, the motive, and then uh, transformed that theme into all of the other themes. Sometimes the listeners can hear the germ motive easily. Uh, other times, Liszt disguises it. It's still there, but requires several hearings to notice the relationship. It's, uh, you can kind of relate it almost slightly to uh, Wagner's idea of leitmotif. Mm -hmm. uh, it's yeah. just, a, just yeah. a germ of an idea that spins out into different germs, mm -hmm. spins out into different ideas. Yeah. Self-composed music. Yeah. Uh, and structurally, uh, Le Perlouse sort of resembles a sonata form, but it isn't, right? Uh, it has a slow introduction, just like many of Haydn's symphony, but uh, what follows includes uh, temp uh, tempo changes, meter changes, key changes, and a harmonic relationship that will occur over the course of an entire four-moment symphony. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, it, I mean it, you can say it's a sonata form, but it really isn't. I mean, it's, it's a completely new thing that he's doing here. Just, just you know, like you said, spinning out all these uh, melodies, all, or this one idea, into many different um, ideas. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much Wagner without the voices. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in a classical symphony, each movement would have its own thematic material. Uh, occasional exceptions include, of course, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, mm -hmm. which quotes from the third movement and the fourth movement, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the three-in-one motives everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but later composers built an entire structure called cyclical mm -hmm. on the idea on the idea of uh, using the same material in more than one movement. This mm -hmm. uh, this is very much part of what Liszt does in this one movement tone poem. Just uh, mm -hmm. you have the germ of an idea that develops over the course of the piece. Yeah, and Liszt also used uh, these cyclical procedures in his orchestral music but he took them an important step farther. Uh, the entire Le Prelude comes from a three-movement motif heard at the very beginning, um, like the pam uh, There is nothing very distinctive about it. Plenty of other composers use it, like Frank, um, in his uh, cyclical, cyclical and multi-movement D minor symphony, opens with exactly the same motif. Um, so, I mean, we can see that other composers are quoting list here. I mean, but not only in Le Prelude, it's also, of course, like we said, Mahler, Mahler, the first symphony, is quoting list, of course. Um, so there you go, uh, list. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I just called you list. <laughs> Andrew, okay. anything you want? I wanna get it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> anything you? Anything else you want to say about this or about list? Uh, I think I think I'm good. List was just a fascinating guy that. Yeah. Um, lived a very strangely involved life. Yeah, fascinating life that he had, definitely. All right. Outrageously good music. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, um, so if there's anything else that you want you want us to ask, um, the audience, of course, you can email us at symphonypodcast at gmail.com. You can, of course, find us on, on iTunes, um, and you can also find us on YouTube, where we put the videos uh, with all the annotations. Um, and that's it. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. There we go. We did it. Yay. <laughs>